sommes pas fous, nous ne sommes pas ivres, nous sommes juste dans la joie, une joie profonde, nos cœurs elle inonde, cette joie, elle vient du ciel, non, nous ne sommes pas fous. Welcome to Sing With Your Feet. My name is Lily Fields and I'm going to be your fairy godmother for the next 30 minutes or so. It's truly an honor for me that you would take some of your most valued resource, your time, to be with me. Thanks for listening. I am genuinely flabbergasted and floored by the reception you've given me. I want to give a quick shout out to those of you who have contacted me through the blog and on social media to share their ideal life exercises. You are a courageous group of country bumpkins and I am one proud fairy godmother. You keep up the good work, ladies. If you have a comment or question, I'm on Instagram as Lily Fields Challenge and on Facebook as Lily Fields. You can also reach me through my home on the web, www.lilyfieldschallenge.com. That's Lily, L-I-L-Y. Hmm, well, I thought, aren't, this is, this is usually where you object to something. You have no objections today? Huh, not, not yet at least. Well, then, since you're being so agreeable today, Let's get on with the show. Have you ever heard of the serenity prayer? <laughs> it's a stupid question. Of course you've heard of it. I remember hearing about it because my mother had a needlepoint of it in her room when I was growing up. The serenity prayer says this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Isn't that lovely? Isn't it dreamy? I love the idea of prayer. I, I believe in prayer. I do it regularly even. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I think we need to get some skin in the game. The distinctions here are important. Serenity, courage, and wisdom. Oh boy. Those words wake up the philosopher princess who dwells under this friendly veneer of fairy godmother I've got going on over here. Oh, the philosopher princess likes long tangents and big words, and I have noticed tends to make people's eyes glaze over when she starts talking. So I will go easy on you. Serenity now. <laughs> Serenity, courage, and wisdom are virtues. And back like in episode one, I argued that virtues make up the edge pieces of the puzzles of our lives. They are the container in which the rest of our ideal life should fit. They are the descriptive words we want our loved ones to say about us after we're gone. Without getting too far down the philosopher princess rabbit hole in a discussion of virtue, let's quickly define these three. Serenity is peacefulness, calm, acceptance. Courage is internal fortitude, bravery of the heart. And wisdom? Wisdom is a sense of good judgment which comes through experience or some other ineffable mysterious origin. These are big words big ideas. And quite often, we are intimidated by big ideas and big words and the highfalutin people that use them. Sometimes, I think we use the serenity prayer as a way out, not because there are things we cannot change, but rather because we do not want to have to change ourselves. We stop there. It means that if we have to change, not if our circumstances have to change, but that if we have to change, We'd rather just pray the serenity prayer and forget about it. Courage is where we have to get some skin in the game. Changing ourselves. Being willing to examine what motivates us and why we behave the way we do. It means coming face to face with our failures, our intentional missteps, our lack of self-control. And as we've seen previously, 
Speaking harshly to ourselves does not get us anywhere. Courage, when it comes to pursuing our ideal life, means allowing ourselves to be curious about our motivations, not judging, not condemning, not immediately drawing conclusions. Imagine you have a child and he failed at something, something important even. How would you speak to that child? It's not a question of glossing over the failure. Failure is a fact, one to be acknowledged. But if I know you, and I like to think that I do know some of you, you wouldn't repeatedly berate the child for failing. You would sit down with him. You'd talk about what's next. Do you want to try again? You would ask in your sweet little Southern Belle voice. It would be far easier to address this person's failure than your own because you're not emotionally involved. To cut through the darkness of your own emotional involvement, you need wisdom. Your most powerful weapon as you pursue your ideal life is not a magic wand or fairy dust, but wisdom. Wisdom whose origin sometimes defies explanation. Even wisdom is out there telling you to be kinder to yourself. When I talk about getting some skin in the game, this is what I'm talking about. I want you to be curious about yourself. I want you to give yourself some grace and some space to feel your feelings. And then, with wisdom, to ask the questions that will start moving you forward. That is the work of the Ideal Life Exercise. I want to say something about perfectionism, because I don't want you to hear the term ideal life and think I'm encouraging you to pursue a perfect life. I am a recovering perfectionist, as well as a reformed people pleaser. As I've mentioned before, I was once introduced to a board of directors as someone relentless in her perfectionism. It was not said in a kind way, in case you're thinking I'm overreacting. Those words had been previously spoken in a tense private conversation only days before, where I was told that I was expecting too much out of too many people. I had thought I was being thorough. I had thought that I was being the little engine that could. I'd lost sleep and gained a ton of white hair to muscle through a project, getting it into existence mostly to please the person who was now telling me that I was being too much. It broke my heart. Sometimes you can't win for losing. So those words, when they were spoken in front of the board that day, they stung like a hand across my face. My goodness, I can still remember exactly what I was wearing. And actually, let me digress for a second. Our clothing can be a powerful, powerful tool of our memory. We'll talk more about that in later season, but for right now, just imagine a piece of clothing that you own, which has the potential to make you miserable just by looking at it. Every time you see it, all the shame, the humiliation, the anger of the situation in which you wore it floods back. You can't bring yourself to ever wear it again. Can I just give you a little piece of advice from me to you? It's free. Get rid of it now, as fast as you can. Don't look back. End of digression. So, I was wearing this really cute suit I had bought precisely for that meeting. I was supposed to get up and speak, but my knees got knocked out from underneath me. Somehow, my attention to detail had been weaponized against me, and it became a reason to ridicule me. I can still hear the pregnant pause before the word perfectionism in that sentence, and the way all the faces pinched up when they heard it, as if they were expecting to hear that I was relentless in something else. What am I doing here, I wondered. What is all this for, anyway? Believe me, since then, I have had a very, very peculiar relationship 
with perfectionism. Here I am, years later, and as it turns out, one of my children is a perfectionist. The apple never falls far from the tree now, doesn't it? As I've been doing a little armchair psychology and trying to help him overcome this, I came across research that said a perfectionist tendency is born as a reaction to having received too much undeserved praise as a child and too little connection with the person giving the praise. Ouch. That says way more about me as a parent than it does about my little boy now, doesn't it? It seems that the budding perfectionist keeps chasing that high he experiences when he receives praise, which is, keep in mind, not actually true connection with the person giving the praise. It's a simulacrum of connection, a candy-coated confection that tastes sweet going down, but doesn't nourish the relationship at all. So our little perfectionist keeps doing more, trying to do more, more perfectly, demanding more of those around him. Praise may or may not follow. The harder the task, the easier it is to fail, and failure can destroy a perfectionist from the inside out. After my own crash and burn with perfectionism, I discovered, after months and months of trying to put myself back together again, was that what I really crave is not praise for working myself and others to a breaking point, but rather genuine connection in a context of clear expectations, rules, boundaries, guardrails, attainable standards, and reliable feedback, both positive and negative, from credible people. And you know what? Sometimes... I have to be that credible person for myself, and that's okay. All of this to say that as we get deeper in, into our discussion of the ideal life exercise and of what we want our lives to look like and who we want to be in that ideal life, perfection is a word I want you to banish from your vocabulary. The P word I want you to replace it with is progress. Progress is the goal. Forget that other P word. When I discovered Marie Kondo and her delightful book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing, I had just had my second baby in 17 months. We lived, and still do, in a 75 meter squared, that's an 800 square foot apartment, which had been absolutely perfect for two people and all of our stuff. By the time our second scalawag was born, the little apartment was feeling quite cramped, and we needed to make some room. I read the book, and immediately fell in love with her process. In many ways, I, I felt like I had found an adorable Japanese version of myself, only she was a freak like me who had parlayed her weird passion for other people's stuff into a medium media empire. Oh, I've always loved a good decluttering. This is something I remember from my own childhood. While I hated the actual process of cleaning my room, that's the, the dusting, vacuuming, washing the windows, I loved filling garbage bags full of things I didn't want or didn't need anymore. I loved getting them out of my room. I loved the feeling of space and eeriness that hovered over a room for days. I loved the almost clinical feel of a space after removing excess stuff. I discovered this in earnest when I moved to France as a student back in 1996. When I was feeling homesick, I would take out all my photos and put them up all, all over my room, and then take them down when I was feeling less homesick. The contrast always felt like a, a breath of fresh air. Even now, I love to peek into a decluttered space, just to look at it and breathe in the freshness of it. A junk drawer, a bathroom cabinet, an underwear drawer, a shoe bin. It never lasts, but maybe it's not meant to last forever. But every time I do it, I get that little thrill. The KonMari method rests on the principle of only keeping in our home what sparks joy. 
When I started my decluttering festival, the joy in my home was being drowned out with the noise of regrets, duty, and ugly memories. Her approach to discarding items that don't spark joy also spoke to me. It, it was to thank these items that I was supposed to be discarding. Thank them for the joy that they brought me at some point. I brought them into the home for some reason, didn't I? I, I bought it because it made me feel good to buy it, even if with time it may have become tainted with other memories, like that P word. Thanking the item as I discarded it is an esoteric process, but it brought me back to some good thought about the item. This served as a powerful tool of self-forgiveness. What's fascinating and exciting about this process is that it doesn't begin with garbage bags and recycling bags and donut piles. It begins by imagining. Have you tried the Comrie method? I bet if you have, you gain some not insignificant benefit from it. Before she has her readers start purging their belongings in gigantic black trash bags, Marie Kondo tells us to imagine our ideal life. Hmm, sound familiar? If you've tried her method, I would venture to bet that in your impatience to see an impact in the amount of stuff and clutter and mess that you had in your house, that you skipped over, or at least maybe gave very cursory thought to that important, literally life-altering step. The first time I tried her method, I was certainly more concerned about making room for a stroller on the balcony than imagining my ideal life. I needed space, and I needed it now. What Marie Kondo suggests in her book is that this kind of decluttering project is once in a lifetime. It's a tidying festival. And although she doesn't say this, I got the impression that once the only things in my life were things that sparked joy, then everything in my life would fall into place and I would never get overwhelmed again. This is untrue. One thing she does say is that once we pare down our belongings to what does spark joy, we will have clearer vision on what we want our lives to be filled with. This is true. The only shortcoming I can find with her method is that it doesn't encourage us to return on a daily basis to our ideal life exercise after we're done decluttering. Finally, one day, my life started feeling a little less out of control, partially as a result of that mega decluttering that I did, but partially because we did eventually get out of the newborn and nursing phases with my children. I returned to my half-hearted attempt at the ideal life exercise and I read through it. <laughs> I was moved with pity by how hopeful I sounded as I wrote about my family, sitting at a fully set table with real glasses, not sippy cups and plastic water bottles, with metal silverware using napkins, I wrote about being the kind of person who doesn't stress out at 5 o'clock p.m. every day about what we're going to have for dinner. Because in my ideal life, I knew what was for dinner because I planned ahead. Now that my space was livable and decluttered, I hungered to experience what Marie Kondo promised. That once our life was only filled with objects that brought us joy, we would be more free to do activities that would bring us joy. At almost the exact same time, my indulgent husband and I were talking about a book I had written years before. I'd never even attempted to get it published. He said to me, You know, I always thought that that Peter character was a wimp. He doesn't actually talk like that, but he is French, so I thought it would be fun. I became so offended by his comment that I immediately took out the book and started reworking it. Within a few months, 
while caring for an infant and a toddler. From that one novel sprang an entire series based on that world and those characters from the first book. Peter became a hero and not a wimp. And I found that I could, even with two small children, write upwards of 3,000 words every single day and never run out of things to say, as long as I was passionate about the subject at hand. I would never have found the space for my passion in my heart if my home were still cluttered with items that dislodged negative feelings or didn't bring me joy. Nor could I have found the time. Having too much stuff is chronophage. That's a French word for which English has no equivalent. It comes from Greek and literally means something that eats time. Chronophage. Stuff eats time. And as you remember from our last episode, time is your one incompressible, irreplicable treasure. Wasting it on stuff is a nuisance. I like to think of my ideal life exercise as MacGyvering the KonMari method. It's to declutter our interior lives, our hopes, dreams, fears, and the things that make us stumble. If you're serious about wanting to feel more contentment, less stagnation, and just generally be more at peace with where you are in your journey, you need to do this. Alors on chante, on danse, on fait la fête Comme au ciel, on chante, on danse, on fait la fête Comme au ciel In the last week, I've heard from quite a few listeners who asked nearly the exact same question about the Ideal Life exercise. And I warned you that I would read your question as a Southern Belle so you knew this was coming. But Lily, I'd rather die than get up early. Or, I'm not a morning person. And lastly, surely it doesn't matter if you do this in the morning or at night. Now, full disclosure, my alarm is set for 4 o'clock a.m. I am not telling you to set your alarm for 4 o'clock a.m. I'm just telling you to set it for 15 minutes before anyone else in your house wakes up. Now, let me head off the objection I can hear percolating in your little country bumpkin mind over there by saying this. If you wait for the perfect circumstances, you will never get anything done. Starting a new habit is hard. The act of setting our alarms seems like an injustice when, after a long day of chasing around small children, we finally collapse into bed. But it is by indulging in this kind of logic that we end up losing our identity in the first place. When everything around us is urgent, we lose perspective on what is important. Think about that again. When everything around us feels urgent, mouths to feed, messes to clean up, tantrums to extinguish, fights to mediate, deadlines to meet, commitments to be met, we lose sight of who we are and who we want to be. Example. It has happened that when my scalawags were hungry, and so was I, but we were still about 30 minutes away from dinner, that I have exploded at them with rage that I did not know I possessed. Remember, I never promised that I have my act together. Just remember that, please. I was hungry. They were hungry. And because everything was urgent, I did absolutely everything wrong. I dropped a box of pasta on the floor, an entire box of elbow pasta, onto the kitchen floor. I couldn't find my grater and freaked out at my eldest, who likes to use it as texture for his drawing projects. He didn't have it, of course. It was exactly where it was supposed to be, but I was too wound up to see it. The boys were hungry, so they were nosing around the kitchen, crunching elbow pasta underfoot, asking for a piece of cheese. Yeah, I lost it. At them. At me. At the whole freaking situation that got out of hand. In my ideal life, I am a person who knows what is for dinner and has it ready before everyone gets hungry. 
In my ideal life, I am a person who has a place for everything and always finds it there when she looks for it. In my ideal life, I am a person who does not freak out at her children. This kind of situation used to be the norm. Urgency ruled the day, and my natural instinct to freak out when things got out of control was my only recourse. Obviously, in my ideal life, I am not a person who freaks out. I couldn't have been farther from my ideal life if I had gone to the edge of space. Then I made that one little change. I started getting up 15 minutes earlier. I wanted to be awake before anyone else in the house. I needed to think in silence without having to be anyone for anyone. I've always been an early riser. That's simply a fact. When I was working full-time outside the home, I was up at 5.30. I enjoy being up early. But children tend to put a damper on any kind of enjoyment, but especially that one. There was a spell there where my youngest child was systematically waking up at 4.15 a.m. So I did the unthinkable. I set my alarm for 4 o'clock a.m. Yep, 4 o'clock a.m. Can I tell you the miracle that happened that first day? That day, my youngest child slept until 6.30 a.m. There are some things that cannot be explained. That is one of the greatest miracles that's ever happened to me. I cannot guarantee that you will experience that same kind of miracle, but I would simply ask that you give it a try. Not 4 a.m., I'm not crazy, but 15 minutes before anyone else gets up. Here are the circumstances I want for you. I want it to still be dark out. I want no one else to be awake. I want you to get cozy. I want you to have your coffee in your hand. I want you to be able to get settled and be completely alone with your thoughts. If you're like me, once you are completely alone with your thoughts and you have no one to be for anyone, you will probably cry. You might cry a lot. That's why you got out a Kleenex box. Doing this when no one else is up means that you have the freedom to let those tears out. Holding everyone else's lives together is exhausting and you deserve a good cry. Somewhere in there, in the quiet, in the dark, in the calm, the voice of wisdom might have something to say to you. It might be a little fragment of a thought. It might be a fully formed sentence. The more time you spend in the silence, in the calm, in the dark, the more attuned you might become to that voice of wisdom. Remember what I said earlier. Very often we can't define where wisdom comes from. It's just a thought that we know isn't ours. It's a whisper. But it is always exactly what we need to hear. I know this sounds crazy, but I do believe that the context in which you do your ideal life exercise matters. So yes, I hear you. You aren't a morning person. You hate mornings. I'd argue that you're wrong about mornings. There is something magical about early mornings, but I really wish you would try. Spending this time in the morning sets the tone for the day. There's a deep feeling of connection and comfort and centeredness that comes from starting your days serenely. But if you insist that you would rather die than wake up early, then please create a routine and a habit of doing your ideal life exercise when you are completely alone, completely relaxed, and completely available. Try to find a moment of the day you can reliably set aside. Context matters. But then, I did say a few minutes ago that if you wait for the perfect circumstances, you'll never get anything done. So, your wish is granted.
So now what? <laughs> After doing your ideal life exercise for several weeks, you probably have a nice, healthy list of in my ideal life, I am a person who statements. What I want you to do, once you feel like you've dredged the dregs of everything you have to say and have listened to the quiet voice of wisdom whisper unexpected secrets into your ear, is to start categorizing your statements. Not in terms of their perceived importance, but thematically. You'll find themes that come back time and time again. It might be about your marriage, or parenting, or your work. It might be about your hobbies, how you interact with the environment. Some statements can straddle multiple themes, and that's good. In that case, you can make a cute little Venn diagram. Oh, sorry, I have a thing for Venn diagrams that I must not project onto you. Ah. <clears throat> for example, in my ideal life, I am a good correspondent. In my ideal life, I am always available when my children need me. In my ideal life, I'm a good listener. In my ideal life, I am socially responsible. In my ideal life, I am fair and just with my children. In my ideal life, I am open-minded and willing to hear other points of view. Oh, this is just a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of my list. But, for example, from this smattering of statements, it looks like relationships are something important to me. Specifically, in my ideal life, I'm a good correspondent. I'm a good listener. I'm open-minded and willing to hear other points of view. Now, I happen to know that when I wrote the statement, I am a good listener, I was specifically talking, specifically thinking about my indulgent husband and not, for example, my best friend who I could listen to talk for hours. And while this could be a general statement about relationships, it is specifically a statement about my marriage. The statements about my children are a different kind of relationship. That is my parenting relationship with those two little scalawags. Yes, being fair and just is important, but it is critically important to me as a parent. So in my ideal life themes, I actually have different categories for relationships, three of them. One for my marriage, one for parenting, and one for all the other relationships in my life. Your homework this week, no matter what time of day you decide to do it, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, is to take a critical look at your in my ideal life, I am a person who statements and identify the themes that rise to the surface. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your feedback, both positive and constructive. Please consider sharing the podcast with someone you love. And if you would be so kind, rate the podcast and leave your review on the podcatcher. This will help others find it too. I want to give a grand merci to Seven Production for the use of the song La Joie as the intro and outro to the show. I'm putting a link to some of the things they do here in Mulhouse, France in the show notes. Take a look. They're pretty awesome. This is your fairy godmother signing off again. And remember, it's never too late to start singing with your feet. <laughs>